This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Good morning. Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. The joy of the Lord is in this place this morning, and I am overwhelmed with gratitude uh, to be here in your midst, to worship with you, to fellowship with you. My arms are tired from all the hugs that I've been on the receiving end of so far this morning, but I'll, I'll gladly wear my arms out in expressing love for you, Christ Church. Uh, Rachel and I are so grateful for the opportunity to be in for a short visit. As Pastor Jeff already said, we've, we've been away in Lancaster this last week for our Trinity Fellowship Church's Leadership Summit. Just so you know, I know you prayed for him. Jeff did a phenomenal job. He was one of our speakers this week at our leadership conference, and he really ministered to the pastors and their wives. It was just such a phenomenal time of refreshment. But let me be honest. Um, what I was really looking forward to most was making that trip down. Got stuck behind a few horse and buggies. But making that trip down here to be in the city of brotherly love because this is truly my home. Someone said to me, how's California? I'm like, it's great, but this is still home. Um, and so I'm grateful to have the opportunity to preach God's word to you this morning. I, I do want to give a, a few, take a few moments to give an update on how God is on the move in San Jose, California. I know I gave a video update just a few short months ago, but I just want to let you know your prayers for the work of God in the city of San Jose are being answered. Um, God is at work in and through his people. God has made it very clear that in the 10th largest city in the United States, one of the most influential areas of the United States, the, the southern tip of the Silicon Valley, where man has descended upon the Silicon Valley to show what he can do, we believe that God has sent us there to show what he can do, what the Lord can do. And so we are grateful to have the opportunity to be a part of planning this church in San Jose. We, we know sooner did we get there in July <clears throat> after a 3,000-mile road trip from Philadelphia to San Jose, two Jeeps, five people, three 100-pound dogs. It was an experience. Um, but as we descended on San Jose, God met us there with blessing on, uh, immediately as we began to work with the church planning team that we are working with there on the other end. And in a very, very short period of time, as we began to work and serve with the small group that we, and leaders that we were sent to work with, <clears throat> God gave us a, just a unity of heart, a unity of spirit, a unity of mission and purpose, and we really were off to the races. Um, one of the most encouraging experiences that we had was we got away um, in the beginning of October for a church planting team retreat. And so we were, we were out in the middle of nowhere um, in the Redwood Forest of the Santa Cruz Mountains, and lo and behold, as we're gathering this little unknown place where your GPS gives out on the way to get to this little campground on the Sunday morning of our church planting retreat, who shows up? Kevin and Hannah McCall, our first guests for our church plant. As they're doing their around the world in 80 days honeymoon drive, um, <clears throat> they show up and they encourage us with their presence. And I really, really believe it was a prophetic moment. That the Lord was showing us that in an unexpected way, at a very unexpected moment in our short history as a church planning team, we had our first guests. And they were an expression of Christ's church's heart to us, your partnership, your love, their presence. And you know to be around them is to be around joy and encouragement. And so Kevin and Hannah were 
such a deep encouragement to us. Well, then that started, that was our church planning retreat. And then from that church planning retreat, um, what we've been doing since then is on the first Sunday of the month, um, we have been meeting in San Jose for what we're calling preview gatherings. Um, so first Sunday of the month, the believers from the church in Fremont, California, and folks here from Christ Church, us and the praise, have been meeting on the first Sunday of the month for Sunday worship. And wouldn't you know that God used their, that prophetic presence of their being guests to our first gathering to actually be one of the greatest marks of encouragement for us so far in just our preview gatherings that we're not publicizing, that are just being spread by word of mouth. But every single preview gathering to this date, we have doubled in size from, the, from the, our small 28-person church planning group. And so we've had plenty of guests. And guests who are unbelievers, people who are coming because they've been invited by friends who are in our small group, and they've come because they have people who love them, that want them to know Jesus. And so right, just right before Christmas, um, we had a family that came and joined us because their son, Junio, plays basketball with one of our church planting team's families, Corbin. And so their parents, Reuben and Angelina, showed up to our church, and they told us that that was the first time that they'd ever been in a church service like ours. Um, they'd never been in a church service where the good news of Jesus was proclaimed, where people gathered together and joyfully celebrated and worshipped, where people were glad to be together and prayed for one another, and then ate some really good food afterwards. <clears throat> they were just so overjoyed to be there. Those are the kinds of people that even in this short period of time, God is calling out um, to connect with us through the church plant in San Jose and giving us an opportunity um, to make much of Jesus. We believe we believe with all of our hearts, and you hear Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt and Pastor Caleb say this often, we believe with all of our hearts that we are called to make disciples of the nations. And the New Testament methodology for making disciples of the nations is planting, establishing, and building local churches that make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we are a part of doing that now in San Jose, California, and you are a part of it because you have sent us and we just want to let you know that God is on the move. In fact, one of the things I experienced very early on in this church planning endeavor was I experienced my first earthquake. This is no joke. I'm sitting in my home office on a Zoom call, and all of a sudden, the room started going like this. And it was just, and it was like, what did I just experience? So I called up one of the guys who's a part, who lives in San Jose. Who's part of I'm like, what was that? And he was like all casually, oh, that's an earthquake. Oh, that's an earthquake? I'm like, the sky is falling for crying out loud. We're going to die. You know, and this was before. I mean, I mean, I mean uh, this was a great moving in the earth. But what we saw in that great moving of the earth was honestly for us just a reminder that as the earthquakes are moving the ground, all throughout the state of California, we are eager for the Holy Spirit to move in the hearts and lives of people all across the bay, bringing them to Jesus as we seek to plant this New Testament church. Amen? Oh, man, we're so grateful. I could say so much more, but then I wouldn't preach. But then I'd try to still preach, and we'd be here forever. So thanks for the opportunity to share that. And would you please continue to pray for us? Um, would you please continue to pray for Rachel and Peter Pray, who are part of the church planning team from Christ Church? and for the brothers and sisters that we have linked up with in that great city, that Christ would establish his church. In fact, uh, would you take your Bible now and go to Matthew chapter 16? I thought it would be appropriate not to get out of new sermon prep, but I thought it would be appropriate to preach a message that I just recently preached to our, church, our, our young church planting group in San Jose. 
And because the same truths, I found that the same truths from God's word that are stirring our hearts for faith, for this work that God has called us to do to plant this church, are the very same truths that should encourage our hearts and give us faith as we continue to build Christ's church wherever we are, whatever, wherever we are in our experience in life in the church. These truths that we're about to look at this morning are deeply faith-building and give us the confidence to continue to lay our lives down for the sake of Christ. Because my brothers and sisters, this is, this is some of the best news I can share with you this morning. It's this, what God has called you to do in building this local church, in this great city, for the fame of God, cannot be stopped. Uh, the title of the message this morning is, Why You Can't Be Stopped. And my good friend Aaron jokingly said to me, he goes, you go away to California for 10 months and you're giving us a self-help message. No, no, no. The you is not about you individually, although there are precious truths and promises from God's word for you personally. This you in the title is you, Christ Church. Why Christ Church can't be stopped. Why what God has purposed to do and accomplish in and through you, in your presence here in South Philadelphia, has been determined by a sovereign God who is overall and everything that God intends to accomplish in you and through you will happen for the glory of God. You are on an unstoppable path to spread the fame of Jesus. And what's been happening in this church for years will continue to happen by the grace of God because of the text we're going to look at this morning. So I invite you now to look at Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13 down through verse 21. Let us hear the word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That is God's word. May his blessing through its preaching and teaching for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the things that we made sure we did with each of our three children, as many of you have done, is that we wanted to pass on to our children the things that we were most passionate about. Now, first and foremost, it's Jesus, amen? But after Jesus, it was Philadelphia sports. 
And so we passed on to our children a love for, for our, our four major sports teams. And, and even when the union came along, we added them to the mix. And so it's, we're not just four for four, we're five for five. And it's been a tough year, hasn't it? But another thing that I passed on to my children was my love for comic books. And so I was a big Superman fan when I was a kid. And so I made sure that when our boys were young, each one of them had a, a, a set of Superman pajamas that they could wear to bed each night. And man, these things got more, these things got more awesome than when I was a kid. Um, the, one, the set that my kids had that was my favorite was one that had a glow-in-the-dark Superman emblem and a Velcro detachable cape. Come on. I mean, can't they make those in my size, okay? If you come across it, let me know. Uh, but I won't take any pictures, okay? Uh, and so I remember one morning that Silas, he was like three years old, he was, he was wearing his Superman pajamas, and Rachel would, the last thing she would do when she'd put him in the bed, she would, she would take off the detachable cape, and then in the morning, he would ask for it. And this particular morning, he came downstairs, and he was all groggy-eyed, and he said, he said, Dad, where's my cape? And so I went and took the cape, and I, I put it on his shoulders, and no sooner did I put the cape on his shoulders, a transformation took place. He went from being groggy, sleepy Silas to the man of steel. And he did something that morning in his Superman pajamas that he had never done before. He got at the edge of the living room, ran across the living room, jumped up on the hearth of the fireplace, pulled back his fist, and punched the brick wall. You know what he found out real quick? He wasn't the little man of steel. <laughs> he started crying. He's like, oh, I'm like, shouldn't have done that. Why did he do it? He said, because he's your son. He's an idiot. No, 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 no. Here's why he did it. In that moment, he thought he was Superman. Isn't it true that we do what we do because we believe we are who we are? We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. Identity drives activity. We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. And as this relates to the subject that I want to press into today from the Gospel of Matthew, even though this text, as it is referenced, as it is taught, first and foremost and primarily draws our attention to the identity of Jesus, Jesus unmistakably in this text also goes out of his way to let us know what our identity is in him. He wants us to know who he is, first importance. And then he wants us to know who we are by virtue of our union or our relationship, our connection with him. Because he knows, we know from experience, the Bible teaches us theologically that we do what we do because we are who we are. How you see yourself in relationship to Jesus Christ, how you understand who you are by virtue of the fact that by faith, grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been united to him. Your sins have been forgiven. Your shame has been covered. Your guilt has been removed. You are no longer separated from God. You've been reconciled to God. You've been justified. You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. You completely live in the goodness of God's favor now and forever, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Amen? But there is an element to this identity in Jesus that's drawn out in this text that speaks to your missional identity. 
your missional identity. Oh, it's so good to revel in who you are because of your union with Jesus. But this text also reminds us of what we do because of our union in Jesus. And Jesus is going to make it crystal clear that you have a missional identity that must not be forgotten. Because if you forget who you are across the board in Christ, it will result in a form of spiritual missional amnesia that will prevent you from being as effective as God has called you to be as it relates to your role in building the church of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to show you from this text how Jesus sees you individually and collectively and how you play a critical role in this body because you are the means through which Christ will unstoppably build his church. That's the big idea we want to think about this morning. We are Christ's means in his unstoppable plan to build his church. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five minutes, five years, or 50 years. You've been set apart by Jesus, united to his body, filled with his spirit, and given gifts to contribute to the building of his church. Every single one of you plays a vital role in God's mission to build Christ's church, to be an ever-increasing, glorious reflection of the Savior to a city in desperate need of salvation. Amen? And so this morning, I want to assist you. I want to come alongside you. I want to help you see what Jesus sees in you, Christ's church, that you are Christ's means in his unstoppable plan to build his church. In order to show you how that truth rises from the text, let me give you a little overview of the text itself. Jesus and the twelve are in Gentile territory, Caesarea Philippi. Interestingly enough, in a text that Jesus is going to talk about building his church, they are presently in a city that was named after Caesar Augustus. And there was even an ornate marble temple there that was, that was built by King Herod to honor him as the great king that built that city. And in the city where there was a statue celebrating what man built, Jesus is going to give some teaching to his disciples to say, but here's what I am building, and it will last forever. And so here in this moment, they are experiencing a rare break in activity. Jesus isn't teaching. Jesus isn't healing. No one is coming to him for help. This is a very not-so-normal moment in the pace and pattern of Matthew's gospel. So here are the 12 with Jesus. Their phones are on airplane mode, and they're getting a not-so-common breather alone with him. And so in this not-so-common breather moment, this also functions as kind of a literary transition in Matthew's gospel. From this point on, the pace picks up. In verse 21, we see the phrase, from that time. So after this moment, from that time, everything in Matthew's gospel is heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus is on a fast-paced, deliberate mission to go and die for our sins. And to be raised from the dead. And then commission his church to go and make disciples of the nations. But before that pace picks up, he wants his disciples to understand something significant. Even though he will be leaving the earth in one sense, he will remain in another through them. 
who have a great work and a great mission to accomplish. Concerning this transition, theologian T.H. Robinson notes, here we reach the crises, the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He knew what lay before him. He knew because he planned the future with his own death in Jerusalem. He had, therefore, to secure some representatives who he could leave behind to carry on his work. He's about to leave, but he will not leave without appointing representatives to carry on his work. So he's preparing those 12 to be the leaders that will lead the church in carrying out that commission that's received at the end of this gospel to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. So that's, that's the context of the text we're looking at. And Jesus is going to communicate to them this vital truth. He looks his disciples in the eyes and he basically says, you are the means through which I will build my church and nothing, not even hell, can stop it. And this truth for them is the truth for us. We continue to be the means through which Jesus builds his church. So here's the question I want to answer from the text this morning. There are many ways to approach teaching a text, even though a text only means one thing. But here's the question I want to answer this morning. What kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? I believe they are identified in this text in four ways. Let me give you all four up front. And uh, we did have kind of a crazy weekend. I did not get the projection for Joe. That's my fault. So you won't see these on the screen, but you will hear them from my lips. And so here they are. The pe what kind of people does Jesus use to build his church first? People who are gripped by the gospel. Second, people who humbly believe that God uses people like us. Third, people who believe that God works through our work. And then finally, people who believe that God's mission cannot be stopped. First, what kind of people does God use to build his church? People who are gripped by the gospel. In verse 13, Jesus asked the 12 disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? And their answers are all over the all-star prophet map. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. In other words, someone really important. If you ask the people, who, who is this teacher, who is this miracle worker, people are saying, he is someone really important. We're not sure who, but he's really important. Now Jesus asked the more important question after he hears their assessment of the crowds. Verse 15, but who do you say? that I am. Oh, there's so many opportunities for rabbit trails here in the sermon, but let me just stop right here and do one. Maybe I'll get a couple more, let's see. But this is definitely the first one that's not in the main purpose of the sermon, but let me just say this. That's the most important question for every single one of you here this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Oh, we know who Christ church says Jesus is. We, we know who your pastors say Jesus is. You may know what your parents say about Jesus. You might know what the person in your small group says about Jesus. But here's the most important, pivotal question that's the difference between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. Who do you say Jesus is? 
like Jesus is saying, all right, you told me how others identify me, but here's what's most important. How do you identify me? The word you is in the plural, so the question is addressed to all 12. Who do you? 12 disciples, my closest people, the people who've been walking with me for three and a half years. Who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Peter, of course, elects to answer for the group. Peter's that guy. I understand that guy. I think I might be one of them. But Peter says, okay, I'll tell you who we say you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if this were a game show, you would have heard a ding, 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 ding. Correct. In other words, the crowds were, were partially right. Jesus was someone important. But he wasn't just someone important. He was the most important, supremely important, the most important figure in all of Jewish and human history. He is the Messiah, God's divine son. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, God's divine son. Theologians call this single statement the great confession. There have been confessions written historically in the history of the Christian church, some of which take up page upon page upon page upon page. But right here is the great confession. One single sentence clearly identifying the person and work of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice that this great confession accents two significant realities about the identity and mission of Jesus. In this great confession, they are saying, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. For those of you who are newer to following Jesus, this is not meant to be an insult, but Christ is not the last name of Jesus. I am Ian McConnell, he was Jesus Christ. No, this word Christ is a title. A word translated in the Greek that refers to the Hebrew word Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the promised one. And as you trace the, the, the promises about the promised Messiah throughout the Old Covenant, we find out that he's going to wear many proverbial hats. Three significant roles were significant in the history of God's people. The prophet, the priest, and the king. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. Priests ministered on behalf of God. Kings ruled on behalf of God. But the Messiah, he would be the perfect prophet. He would be the perfect priest. And he would be the perfect king. And so when the Messiah would come, he would speak perfectly on behalf of God because he would be God. He would care perfectly for God's people on behalf of God because he would be God. And he would rule perfectly on behalf of God because he would be not just a king, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the Messiah would be the one who was anointed and sent by God to reign over God's people as king, to rescue God's people as their priestly deliverer, and to restore God's people from the brokenness of sin as his word makes them whole. And so Peter is saying in this great confession that they believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior King. They also believe that Jesus was the son of the living God. 
There is much packed into this title, but here's what's most important. They recognize that Jesus is not just a good man, that he's not an ordinary prophet, priest, king, that he is the God-man, that he is the divine son of God. So you put all of this together from this great confession, and here's what you have. The great confession is a confession of the gospel. The good news that Jesus is the God-man sent by the Father, anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit to rescue, rule, and restore sinners through the accomplishments of his life, death, and resurrection. So Leon Morris notes in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, it may not be easy to precisely understand what Peter thought about the anointed one, who he would be, and what he would do. But he was certainly giving voice to an exalted view of Jesus. He could not have ascribed a higher place to him. Here's the bottom line. These brothers were gripped by the good news of who Jesus was and what he was sent to do. And the way they described him in that short confession identifies that within their hearts they believed that there was no one higher, no one greater, no one more important than Jesus. So who are the people that God uses as his means on his unstoppable mission to build his church, people who are gripped by the same gospel, people who are gripped by the same confession, that there is no one like Jesus, that there's no greater declaration that God the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to be raised from the dead so that everyone who repents of their sin and believes in the Messiah will be given eternal life. That is the best news ever. And the people that God uses to build his church are ordinary men and women who are gripped by that same gospel. That there's no one greater than Jesus. And as Philadelphians, this has been a good year for us to be reminded that there's no one greater than Jesus. I see the chuckles, and you know where I'm going. Oh, it's so cool to be in San Jose and be able to represent Philadelphia. I, I'm not, I, I believe that contextualization needs to be genuine. I don't go there and pretend I'm not from Philadelphia. I go there as an expression of Philadelphia's heart to San Jose. So what do I do in our house? We're waving the flags for our sports teams while they're playing. So here I am in San Jose. No other Philadelphia sports fans around me. And the Phillies go to the World Series. It was awesome until it wasn't. The Philadelphia Union go to the MLS Cup. It was awesome until it wasn't. The Philadelphia Eagles, Super Bowl, baby. That was so awesome until it wasn't. I mean, the Sixers get to the second round of the playoffs. And then lose again. Oh, this has been a year for me to be reminded that there's something more awesome than being a Philadelphia sports fan. My brothers and sisters, I don't know what your Philadelphia sports fan thing is. There's something that you think is awesome. There's something that you think is great. There's something that you wake up in the morning and think about. There's something that you spend your money on because you enjoy it. And these aren't bad things, but let me tell you this. There's nothing better than Jesus. Nothing better 
than Jesus. And you know what Philadelphia needs? You know what South Philadelphia needs from you? For you to show a watching neighborhood, to show a watching block, to show a watching student body, to show a watching group of coworkers that there's nothing in this world better than Jesus. And that is going to be the means through which Christ builds his church, a group of ordinary, spirit-filled Jesus lovers who are willing to live their lives in such a way where it's clear by the way they talk and the way they walk that there's nothing better than Jesus. So what kind of people does Jesus use to build his church? First, people who are gripped by the gospel. Second, people who believe that God actually uses people like us. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's confession in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. You notice here that Jesus' response to Peter's confession about Christ's identity was a declaration about Peter's identity. Let me tell you who you are. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So the age-old question that has been debated for just about forever, thousands of books of, the, of, of theology have been written to answer one singular question. What is the rock? Is the rock Jesus? Is Jesus speaking in contrast here? Peter, the name in the Greek is Petros, which means little pebble, little stone. Is he saying, Peter, you're a little pebble, and I am the big rock. And I'm going to build the rock on this big boulder. Me, Christ, the Son of God. Or is the rock talking about Peter? Is Peter the rock? Exclusively. Is Jesus anointing Peter as the first pope? I think not. Peter, you are the rock. And I'm going to build my church on you uniquely. Or is it Peter as a representative of the apostles? Remember, Peter is speaking up on behalf of the twelve. Who do you, plural, say that I am? Peter, as a representative of the apostles, stands up and says, you are the Christ. And so he's speaking on behalf of the twelve, the leaders, the representatives of the church. Is, he, is, is Peter, as a representative leader of the church, being identified as the means through which the church will be built? Or is the rock Peter's confession? Could it be that you are the Christ, the, the Son of the living God? Maybe that confession is the rock. And so we would say that the proclamation of the gospel is the rock upon which the church will be built. So is it Jesus? Is it Peter as a representative? Is it the gospel proclamation? The answer is yes. See, I could have just answered this question with one page in all those theology books. Just, just kidding. Not to belittle the rigor that this question deserves. But I honestly believe it's a confluence of all those answers. In the context, I believe, and I'm not alone, that the rock upon which Christ will build his church is the gospel Peter is confessing as a representative leader of the church. I believe the rock that Christ will build his church upon is the gospel, that's the confession, that Peter as a representative leader of the church, is declaring. And so the message and the messengers are yoked together. Jesus is going to build his church through leaders like Peter, who serve as a prototype of those who are set aside as called, gifted, 
and, and qualified to lead the church forward on gospel mission, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's exactly what happens, by the way. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost, 120 people in a room praying. God fills them all with the Holy Spirit. And all the apostles and all the men and all the women who are there, part of this small, tiny church planting team, go out into the streets of Jerusalem and begin to testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Spirit of God enables them to proclaim and overcome natural barriers to proclaiming the gospel by giving them the ability to speak in languages that they had never learned so they could get the gospel to every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem. And then Peter, as the leader of this small group, gets up and preaches a dynamic sermon. So the disciples are gospelizing, and then Peter gets up and preaches a message. And what happens? The Spirit comes, 3,000 souls added to the church, and the Jerusalem church is planted. I believe what happens on the day of Pentecost is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Matthew chapter 16. That the, the Spirit-filled, gospel-proclaiming leaders of his church would lead his people forth and proclaiming the gospel into the streets of where they were sent, and then God would build his church. So Jesus, Jesus builds his church through his gospel-proclaiming people, led on mission by gospel-proclaiming leaders. This is how God began to build the church on the day of Pentecost, and that is how God continues to build his church today. Gifted leaders are called to lead the church on mission with the gospel. And when God blesses those efforts, he is building his church. So my question is, do you believe that God still works that way today? You better because you're evidence of it. It wasn't too long ago that God set apart some leaders and gave them a vision for planting a church here in South Philadelphia. I remember when they gathered in a little tiny room back there in 2013. That was it, 2013, right? 14. A little group of believers in that back room over there, that's now a children's ministry. And there was a heart and a vision and a passion to bring the good news of Jesus to the streets of this community and trust Christ to build his church. Here we are. Look, he's building his church. So let me encourage you, I can say this now, especially that I'm not here all the time, I can say this, I believe God has given you some gifted, humble, strategic, missional pastors who are envisioned by the Spirit of God and the scriptures and the needs of this city to continue to lead you, Christ Church, on mission with the gospel. And so I commend to you, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt and Pastor Caleb, I commend to you your pastors. These are leaders who want to lead you on mission to make much of Jesus. And as you follow them into the fray, here's what you should expect, that God is going to use you. Or maybe I'll say it this way, God will continue to use you. Because he is. Who does God use to build his church on his unstoppable mission? He uses people like you, led by leaders like your pastors, to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done in South Philadelphia as it is in heaven. Third, people who believe that God works through our work. 
This is a nuanced difference from what I just said. God, God uses you, but how does he use you? God himself works through you. It's important to believe that God uses people like us, but it's also important to know how God uses us. And here's what I think God is showing us in the text. God supernaturally works through our ordinary work. God supernaturally works through our ordinary work. Look at how Jesus explains the reason why Peter understands the true identity of Christ in verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you figured it out. Is that what he says? No. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is an amazing truth. Not only about how an individual comes to faith in the true identity and significance of Jesus, but it's also an amazing statement about how God works through our work in the mission of making Christ known. I mean, think about this. Who is proclaiming the gospel to Peter? It was Jesus. Jesus was teaching and proclaiming and healing in every town, in every village. Jesus was ministering through his words and through his deeds. But Jesus says, who was it that revealed the significance of who I was through that teaching and through those deeds? Jesus says, the Father. See, Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter didn't come to faith in Christ simply by figuring it out on his own because he heard the gospel proclaimed and lived out by the best gospel preacher that ever walked the face of this earth, Jesus. Jesus says the Father opened his heart through the words and deeds of the Messiah. So Jesus is serving. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is proclaiming. Jesus is healing. But the Father is at work in Jesus through the anointing of the Holy Spirit to make it effective. You say, wow, that's some deep Trinitarian stuff there. You know, we could... We could wade into the deep Trinitarian mystery stuff at another time, but let this be known. If Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, needed the empowering presence of the Spirit through the Father to accomplish His mission on earth, what do you think about us? What do you think about us? We desperately need God to work through our work in order to make all of our efforts effective in making Jesus known. And so as you serve, as you bring the light of the gospel into the darkness of addiction through TTR, yes, do that, but the only way it will build the church is if the Spirit empowers it to make it effective. Oh, please, this summer, I'm so excited. Please go and show the children of this community that Christ Church cares because the Father cares and St. Jesus. May God bless that children's camp. But let me tell you something. You can do it as well as you could ever do it. And I know you will. I know who organizes those events. I know the people who make this happen. It will be excellent. But being excellent is not enough. You need the Spirit of God to come and anoint all those acts of love and make them effective in making Jesus known. As we go forth and do the good work of serving our community, we need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to use it to make Jesus known.
So God works through our work. So what kind of people does God use? People who are gripped by the gospel. People who believe that he uses ordinary servants like us. People who believe that the Spirit of God in Jesus' name, sent by the Father, empowers us to accomplish good work in his name. And then finally, people who believe that God's mission cannot be stopped. Look at the promise in verse 18. This, some, it's almost too good to be true. Did he really say this? And does it really apply to you? Oh, my brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. I will build my church, okay, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know that every good work that you seek to do in Jesus' name is being opposed? Not to freak you out and get you looking for a demon under every bush. They were definitely in the sound system this morning, right? They show up in the, in the audio-visual equipment all the time. Half-heartedly joking there. But we are opposed. The evil one hates what you're doing here in South Philadelphia. He is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. The devil is a liar and a slanderer and is opposed to Jesus. He's a slithering snake that wants to take you out, wants to stop every good endeavor that you have purpose to do as a church. And here's what Jesus says. He can't stop you. Come on, church. Can we clap for that? Look, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying every great idea that Pastor Jeff has is going to be successful. It's not. Every great idea that I've had over the years has not been successful. Every great idea that, that Pastor Jeff has, two things are going to happen. Number one, Joe Cater is going to say, we can't do that, no way. <laughs> or we're just going to simply give it our best effort. And it's not going to happen. This promise doesn't mean that everything we decide to do will be successful. And oh, there's, it's such a walk of faith to attempt things for Jesus, expect great things for Jesus, and then things don't work out the way you thought. I mean, there are precious friends in this congregation that are a part of a local church with me in West Philadelphia that are here in this room now and Covenant Community Church in West Philadelphia no longer exists as it once did. So sometimes the things that we plan and the things that we do don't always come to fruition as we envision. But here is what Jesus is saying. Everything I purpose to do to build my church will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that snarling, cranky, nasty, evil one cannot stop it. I don't know about you, but I kind of like being on the winning team. <laughs> Part of rooting for teams that lose, that's hard. But if, any, if there are any athletes in the room here, you know what it's like to be on the court or to be on the field. And when you play, you kind of want to win. I've heard these, you know, things have changed a little bit. You know, I remember when I was involved in some um, youth football coaching, I would hear coaches say, you know, it's not about winning, it's about having fun. I'm like, it's fun to win. And so I've played a lot of sports, and some of you have played sports with me. And when I play, I play to win. If I'm playing basketball with you, and you're not that good, 
and you try to pull up a shot in front of me, I'm going to block your shot. I'm not there to build up your self-esteem. I'm there to win. You can see how this is a struggle in parenting sometimes, so pray for me. You will not get sympathy from me on the court. Sympathy in the counseling session? Yes. But not on the court. I like to win. But here's the reality. I lose. We lose. We don't always win. Jesus is saying, I don't lose. I never lose. Ultimately, I never lose. And get this. We are on his team. You are on his team. Don't you like that? Doesn't that build your faith? Christ is building his church through people like you by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And what he has purposed to do here in Christ church and through Christ church cannot be stopped. That is good news. The following article appeared on the front page of the Seattle Times under the heading, Who is this man? It says, quote, a man in his 50s says he woke up in Discovery Park three weeks ago with no memory of who he is or how he got to Seattle. Doctors know he's intelligent, well-educated, and fluent in three languages, but they don't know how to help him. For now, he's known as John Doe. The blonde-haired man with the walrus mustache, you can imagine that, wandered out of Seattle's Discovery Park three weeks ago with pressed khakis, an expensive dress shirt, a blue blazer, and $600 hidden in his sock. He was uninjured, but said he was confused, lost, and frightened. This much is clear. He is fluent in English, French, and German. He possesses a professorial knowledge of European cultural history. He seems to have traveled the world, and he says he is a widower, but he says he doesn't know who he is, where he's from, or when he was born. He's not even sure if he wants to know. He goes on to say, but if you don't have an identity, it's very difficult to survive. After several interviews and medical examinations, it was concluded that he was suffering from a bizarre case of amnesia. He truly forgot who he was. And like he said, if you don't know who you are, how can you survive? Christ Church, do not forget who you are. It will not only be difficult for you to survive, it will be increasingly difficult for you to thrive in your mission here in South Philadelphia and beyond. If you forget who you are, if you suffer from a missional amnesia, you will find yourself ineffective. But if you regularly recall who you are, that you are Christ's means in his unstoppable plan to build his church, then you will be energized with faith to serve, for God to work through your work, and to participate in his great mission to do something in this church and in this city that cannot be stopped. So stay gripped by the gospel. Stay humbly aware that God wants to use you, that he intends to work through your work, to continue to work through your work, 
and what he plans to do cannot be stopped. Christ Church, do not forget who you are. You are Christ's means and his unstoppable plan to build his church. Amen? Let's pray.